0: Uh, my name is Bee Layman, and I'm recording for New Books in History. Today, I'm sitting with Yajun Mo talking about Touring China, A History of Travel Culture, 1912 to 1949. It was recently published with Cornell University Press. And we want to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, is it okay to call you Yajun, or would you prefer Professor Mo?
1: Yes, call me Yajun, please. Thank you, for inviting me.
0: It is absolutely a pleasure to be here. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Touring China. Uh, it was fascinating from multiple perspectives because you bring in a lot of the personal, but tie it beautifully together with this idea of developing modernity and the, uh, the concepts of nationality and Chineseness in the early 20th century. Before we actually get into the book, though, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about yourself uh, either maybe where you were born or how you got to Boston College, where you're now a professor. We'd love to know a little <laughs> bit more about you. Thank you. Uh, yes, my name is Yajun Mo. Uh,
1: I came from Shanghai, I actually was born in Shanghai. I went to college in Shanghai, I kind of never left the town until I graduated college. I was actually originally a literature major, but so realized I, I'm. You know what kind of interested me in literature is not like how people write, but uh, how people write, but rather like what propelled them to write. So a lot of the things, oftentimes, the answer lies in history. And I started to take history class and eventually uh, become a history major. But the kind of history I'm interested in, kind of a social cultural history, it's not quite common at a time when I was going through college in like the late 1990s and early 2000s in, in mainland China. So an advisor pointed me to Hong Kong, where I did my master's degree at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And there, it's also where kind of kind of the more interest in the social cultural history developed. And at the time, I remember um, Suzanne Mann, who's very kind of established, uh, you know, kind of influential... Gender historian of China, but about late imperial China. From UC Davis, was visiting Hong Kong, and I went to talk to her, kind of get some ideas about PhD program. And she pointed me to because I'm interested in 20th century, not her time period. She points me to UC Santa Cruz, where uh, Shatter and Emily Honek uh, uh, is uh, uh, were and still are the kind of the paramount figures about social cultural history of uh, 20th century China. That's where I did my PhD. So uh, a lot of things kind of not planned, but I feel like I'm quite lucky. Every juncture, people point me to great people. And that's where kind of after I got my PhD, I taught at liberal arts college. I taught at another kind of um kind of more kind of first generation centered, uh, kind of the university. And then that's, then I came to BC in 2015 where I stayed, uh, for the past six years. Yeah.
0: Well, that is certainly sounds like a fortuitous set of events that have loved you here. Could you tell us then a little bit about how you came specifically to write Touring China? Yeah,
1: I, Two things came to mind when I consider kind of the origin of this book. One, maybe a little bit more like, more like a, a intellectual. One is a very practical. Uh, the intellectual thing is like I'm all, I always love travel writing. I, as I said, I was a literature major. I read a lot. One of my favorite writers growing up is this Taiwanese writer called Sanmao Mao, who's a woman who wrote about her life, like his her kind of. Life in, uh, Spanish Sahara. So she, she wrote about very exotic, very kind of chaotic that I, I loved it when I was in high school. And later, you know, in college, I came across like Orientalism. I think, you know, the book, like, uh, by Edward Said kind of came to drawn to post-colonial theory, even though I don't know at a time that was post-colonial theory drawn to kind of looking at travel writing as part of the colonial project, even though, again, I don't know that what I was reading. But this also opened a new kind of way to look at travel writing and look at travel as this kind of significant colonial practice, not just about literature. So, but, you know, as I kind of read more, I realized in those studies, especially in English, um, China don't appear, or Chinese don't appear to be the traveler, right? They they often China appear as a travel destination for Western or other foreign explorers, and and so so that to me is a huge kind of uh, gap, uh, which led me to think along the line of developing it again. These are the intellectual impulses, but there's a very practical reason too. So when I started graduate program in California, I also in uh, at uh, UC Santa Cruz we actually everyone, no matter you are in the PhD program or master program, you need to finish a master thesis in the second year. But the second at a time, I don't know how to drive, so. You've been to Santa Cruz. It's, it's not a very well connected through public transportation. So it, it posed, a, posed a practical kind of obstacle to me is like, where do, we, do I find sources, primary sources for a master thesis? So I went to the McCurry Library, which happened to have a whole set of the Leo magazine, which I wrote about in chapter two. Which is a 1980 reprint, but still a whole set with all the images and articles, and where I found all those travel columns, which based on which I wrote my master thesis. So the practical origin is actually I don't know how to drive. I, I didn't know how to drive at the time, of course. So I learned, but but that also gave rise to the original origin of this book from the master thesis, you know, which I wrote the second year. Uh, came to this country, which is about travel column in now your magazine, which is like, uh, very influential, like life magazine for China, even though it started before life magazine.
0: And it's very kind of photo journalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I thought it was great that you were able to include a couple of those spreads and images from the magazines and a couple of other pieces in the book. I'm Also, slightly amused that your ability to travel influenced a work on travel. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and
1: also kind of what my view about history. Oftentimes, is shaped by coincidences or accidents. Like it's just by chance. I they have the whole
0: set, and by chance I was looking. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fortuitous. That is also, though, a great segue to go into the content of the book directly. Now, your book takes the reader into the conditions and feel of travel, starting particularly in the early 20th, but it actually does include some late 19th. But could you provide the listeners with a little bit of a sense of the choice or experience of travel in that early 20th century period?
1: Yeah. um, So something kind of always, kind of when I form the kind of the structure of the book in the beginning, I was thinking about, uh, maybe I, (laughs) give me a second. (laughs) Okay, so travel is not something new in either late 19th century or early 20th century. For millennia, Chinese traveled, you know, travel for education, for work, for politics, for family, exile, you know, pilgrimage, all these, phenomenon, you know, kind of in the world history of travel also exists in China. So there's also a long history of travel writing, especially by the literati men, uh, which is very quite, you know, uh, celebrated. But what's new at that juncture, at the turn of the 20th century, is the what I call the industrialization of travel, or a lot of people could call it the industrialization of travel. It means people began to travel by train, steamships, motor cars, um, but at the same time of course combined with the you know, kind of traditional way of travel, like river boats, you know, horse drawn carts and other kind of just hiking, you know, off foot. You know, this 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 transition really allowed people to travel faster, further with larger groups which you know the package travel of tourism uh, in some uh, chapters I'm talking about group travel and also the relationship is changing right you're no longer just travel with say the literati men that happen to have positions right next in your neighborhood or you 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 participate in civil service exams in the same year but now you really travel with your classmates travel with your co-workers some of the urban, uh, citizens in Shanghai and other major cities joined uh, tourism clubs, which is a new new type of uh, organization in the early 20th century. So you you have all these kind of phenomena also combined with the restructuring of time associated with industrialization throughout the world in the urban urban areas. For example, China adopted Gregorian calendar in 1912. You have weekends. You have You know, kind of holidays based on the calendar, based on the Gregorian calendar, not the lunar calendars anymore, which allows certain groups of urban, urbanites like the students, teachers, um, office workers, managers, all these people starting to consume tourism. At the same time, also consume tourism centered travel print media, which basically is what I see as a cluster of changes that build into this choice and experience of travel in 20th century and mark our difference, or a huge difference from the previous, kind of late imperial or imperial period. So
0: you've just... Taken the listeners through a little bit about all of those different points that you cover in the book, talking about how some of the changes in infrastructure, how some of the changing idea of nation, community development, etc., all impact the development of the nation. And, and part of your argument is that tourism should be understanding as and should be understood pardon, as one of the driving forces in the idea of the modern Chinese space and modern Chinese nation. How did you come to tourism, though? I find your argument very clear and persuasive. But how would you get there? Is This is an essential part of the larger story. And part of it is, again, it's the sources that let me
1: there. As I mentioned, at first, I'm not particularly looking for tourism. Right? I'm just looking at travel columns. I'm looking at travel magazine, pre-media. And as a phenomenon, I realized all these pre-media content of travel is really related to tourism related to the tourism business, especially um uh, uh uh after Laoo, what I found is the most commonly found in East Asian libraries in <clears throat> at the time I went to Stanford and Berkeley uh is a magazine called Lushing Zazhi, which is uh, uh English title is china traveller It's published by the largest and uh, uh largest a comprehensive travel agency try run by Chinese at the time, China Travel Service, which led me to kind of do archival work in Shanghai, go to you know the municipal archives to dig out there basically the archival materials of the companies, and it really give me it led me to see okay, the core of the story is tourism or tourism in a shape and form that is emerging uh um, from this kind of both both of business that also want to facilitate facilitate travel like for business for other kind of practical reason or travel, but at the same time they really see tourism as very much the business that, or at least the direction of the business should take for that business to be successful and be to a certain degree meaningful. Uh, to the larger institution, actually, the, the founder of the agency, Wanted build. So so the source lead me to there. But at the same time, as I deepening my research, I realized it's also 20th century. It's also a moment of tourism around the world. One of the reasons the book was in a series for, you know, not a China-specific series, but for a series on tourism history and culture, is really about that moment connecting the globe, uh, especially at a moment when tourism in national background starting to develop all throughout the world. Of course, it, it, it depends on where you are talking about. It might be somewhere as earlier, like in Great Britain, in America, somewhere as later. Uh, and the common threats like, you know, uh, the development of infrastructure, the development of national market, the development of print media uh, through that national market. All these threads I talk about in China is actually developing the rest of the world in a different degree, different ways. Also, I'm not talking about everywhere is the same, of course, but the influence of that. I also see China is very much part of that global story, not just a China specific uh, moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that, well, to me at least, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and moving into that, you actually spend uh, much of the first two chapters in particular setting out a lot of the infrastructure associated with travel. You particularly emphasize rail, the spread of media, particularly photojournalism. And can you talk about how you understand the connection between that kind of infrastructure that, as you just said, is happening around the world and the idea of the modern that you're tying it together with? Yeah, I think they're
1: very kind of co-dependent, or maybe we'll can it co, co co-constructive, right? You know, you really have these. We we will call probably technology, um, like railways, a transportation's print, print is technology to a certain degree. Travel agencies or institutions also, you know, kind of com, uh, you know accompany these emergence of technology, which is. A part of the modern reality, people. You know, I I agree. You know, it's reality. I'm more like materialist in that way. I don't I don't think that's 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 wrong to assert that people live in fundamentally different ways, you know, including how they traveled. On the other hand, but but it's not a entire story, right? The story also about the perception, uh, the 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 ideas associated with these. Infrastructures or or the purpose and meaning of these infrastructures, they are not uh, like coming out of nowhere, you know, uh, building vacuum. They are, they're built through the perceptions or they're built within these perceptions too, which, which are what I meant, what I mean is like the ideologies, the discourses. About modernity, which attached to technology, which we are still very much intertwined today when we talk about, you know, you know, technology and infrastructure. Just, you know, think about the debate about infrastructure in this country recently. So, so in my book, I really want to capture this kind of co- co-dependent or co-construction or co-constructive kind of relationship between them. You, you cannot you know, you cannot escape this, both the material side and the ideological sides of these, you know, both the ideas of modernity and uh, ideas of infrastructure. And uh, the material part of infrastructure and idea of the modernity is very much, you know, intertwined. Yeah, that
0: that makes a lot of sense. And I'm attempting to stop myself from making all sorts of science fiction references right now. Uh, I don't know if you've, been watching a red foundation but i will just move on from that i know i didn't grow up in this country
1: i'm missing a lot of cultural reference my cultural reference is very much like centered in a very weird time period from the west wing to you know something more recent
0: i i hear you on that i was actually not allowed to watch uh tv or listen to music as a child so i've got some weird gaps too uh, but moving back to the book and away from science fiction. Uh,
1: <laughs> we should have another you know, conversation about science fiction. I would be d- delighted.
0: Oh. You use, as you just said, the idea of infrastructure, etc. You look at technology, tie it to the idea of the modern. But one of the major things that you're also doing in the book is looking at different developments of print cultures, including those that photojournalism that we were talking about earlier, and tie it to the idea of community and community development. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand that and how you look at those, for example, studies, of tie it together with things like studies of school books and newspapers and, and bring it argu- arguably into a more public sphere? Uh,
1: yeah, thank you for the question. I think it's, Quite central to the book is about the print media, especially kind of this travel related print media, especially in this kind of foreshadowing today's say travel journalism right and it's it's kind of an early version of that um What I think I'm influenced by is uh as you mentioned the uh, studies about textbooks, studies about newspapers, which is, of course, very much related to what uh, Benedict Anderson talked about, print capitalism and its influence uh, or its link or connection to the rise of nationalism um, in Europe and then as well as in the colonies um, around the world. Um, one thing I want to kind of not an intervention, but add on to that discussion, is really think about textbook or maybe more similar to newspaper. What I'm talking about is more similar to newspaper than textbooks because textbooks is uh, somewhat more f- um, kind of focused on this kind of top-down or at least inst- more institutionalized idea of um, of nation. In, in certain ways especially through if you think about history textbooks geography textbook you know of course geof- geography textbooks often very interesting to me uh, which influenced travel writing because they referring back the writers were referring back to the common knowledge or what they thought was common knowledge which is very much the textbook version of China's geography or to a certain degree we can use the concept of job body right You really is focusing on the this uh this 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 fixated or very very uh, fixed version of China's what I call the national space. But I think what I'm interested in, in is both the more concrete one. Uh say you are not just thinking about the nation, the space as a whole, but you are you are also thinking about um like the specific locality. You are also experiencing what we might call like the sites right which is exists we're not talking about virtual travel or or in some ways travel writing you're reading consuming it is a vicarious a vicarious travel but but that concrete version i think is more related to what i'm thinking about when i talk about travel pre media but at the same time i think conversely there's a quite a bit of a fluidity also captured by travel pre media than the textbook. The textbook will tell you, okay, here's the map of China and there's how many provinces and every province have this population and geography and culture or food or even maybe textbooks don't talk about food. But but I think in travel writing the fluidity is really about, you know, what people see on the spot and at the moment is not quite always aligned with what textbook talk about you know sometimes they have you know the comments that is very much kind of kind of um, at a moment which reflected even just like a, the experience at the train station right it's, it's a very fluid moment of which is not captured by textbooks or you know or maybe captured by newspapers more but but in that sense I think going back to community it really sends you back, you know, if the textbook is really thinking about uh, the nation as whole, have, have this perception of you're your educating the future of the nation. Uh, the travel magazines, more like newspaper, really think about who's reading it, their readership. So they're, you know, very much the urban class bourgeois uh, kind of consumers. They, they, they have this assumption of their shared mindset, in a lot of way, could be you know what maybe in in my book I talk about their their shared mindset of being modern, right? That's their identity, and to a certain degree also translocal. Even though that translocal, how far that community they think they they would imagine it as the entire nation as their potential readership, but I think they are very also very practical and clear about its urban middle class. Who can not only afford maybe a train ride to just outskirts of Shanghai, but also kind of can afford a, a few kind of travel magazine or just one magazine with a few column in that. So this is kind of these print travel print media, both reflected and also affected with you know who are the people, and who are the community travel in in that moment for me. So so I think it's 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 how. I'm trying to kind of contribute to this very kind of already very established idea about print, print media, or
0: print culture and the community, the formation of community. Thank you for that. With in what you just said, you mentioned obviously the phrase "nation" a couple of times. You mentioned Benedict Anderson, who is inescapable for that concept. Uh, but you also, in the first chapter, particularly, but it comes up again and again in the book, talk about the nation in a semi-colonial environment. So, could you discuss how you understand the concept of the nation in China, in particular? Yeah, that's that's probably the hardest question. That I don't know how to answer because
1: I, for me, you know, you know, if you think about the concept of nation, you know, as you can tell, I'm very much in the You know, Benedict Anderson School about it's imagined. Uh, You know, by that, I don't mean it's not real. I think it's very real. You know, it's, it's, it's quite real. Uh, It's, it's real. The question is actually not about whether this sense is real or not. And in looking at 20th century China or the first half of the 20th century China, it's super real for everyone. The realness came from the danger of the potential demise of China, which Rebecca Kao wrote a a whole book called Stage in in the World, which really discussed nationalism in the turn of century China as a response to this global colonialism that was raging around the world and and Chinese intellectuals, you know, looking at, say, uh, Poland, looking at, you know, uh, what today is South Africa, you know, other places, Hawaii, and, 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 and see their image in those, you know, uh, colonial expansion in those locations, right? It really, you know, Kyle argued very uh, kind of convincingly to me that's what nationalism actually emerged, at least for the intellectuals. So uh, for me, in this book, I'm, 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 I'm calling back to those moments, but also, kind of looking at the other side. By the other side, I mean the the lure of that colonialism for the nation. You know, it's not just about we need to defeat these colonial expansion to save our nation, but the nation itself is in 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 flux. Or the first of all, the idea is emergent. The idea of being a nation state as kind of the common, globally, international accepted entity was emerging. The second is where and to what extent that Chinese nation state should physically locate is still in flux. Even though, even though people tend to think about nation as fixed, right? Since, you know, used official language will be since time immemorial, China is where China is, right? But, you know, looking at the fine prints of the details of the history will tell us something slightly different. So for me, in the book, I really trying to kind of not just say it's imagined, but also kind of ask the question, how this kind of contradiction, on the one hand, the nation is in flux. You know, it's always constantly in negotiation with all sorts of forces, but at the same time, it's insisting on its permanence, on its essential meaning, on its kind of the the place in history, time and space, right? This tension is particularly kind of Intense when you situated in the semi-colonial setting of China, because that negotiation happened every day for everyday life, especially for the tourists when they need to go through not just you know um, where uh, not just like a, a, a kind of where they travel from uh, to what destination they travel. But also the means of their travel and the social space of those, you know, spaces like trains and steamships, because you have semi-colonial jurisdictions exist in different spaces in China. So for me to kind of looking at nations, kind of the negotiation, how people based on what people imagine their national belonging belonging in that context is very interesting. I don't know if I answered the question, but I think that's what
0: my angle is. In my opinion, at least you did, in part because, well, I very much agree with you on the idea of the nation being, well, one of an imagined structure, but then also partly the meaning of it being in the negotiation of it to a large extent. So I. So
1: to me your answer makes a lot of sense. But maybe I can add one thing is yeah. the negotiation also hinged upon you don't acknowledge it's a negotiation.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: really hinged upon this kind of erasure of that negotiation, uh, that happening all the time. Which in semi colonial China, which of oftentimes even for average traveller you need to negotiate all the time. Like for example, whether you can buy a ticket, it's a negotiation right you cannot buy the first class for the foreign foreign travelers in even you know in, in on a steamship or that kind of that kind of situation you know kind of force you to kind of ignore that right that that inconvenience for your idea of what nation should be
0: yeah, and you You bring that out particularly in the latter chapters when you talk about the different regions of the country. And sort of to dig into that a little bit, You throughout the book, you really emphasize the connection between different parts of China as a concept with this nation and how travel tourism was used to emphasize the inclusion of those spaces such as Western, uh, Northern, etc., and you also look a little bit at the idea of othering, particularly when you go southwest through Vietnam.
1: Yeah, so so for me, it's, you know, if we are thinking about negotiation, I really want to bring out in those chapters, especially So, So the book is kind of organized with the first part is really talking about travel or tourism in the more core region of China, which we can talk about why I say core region of China. And the latter half will be about the periphery. So I talk about uh, the Northwest, the Southwest, and then Manchuria and Taiwan. So when I'm kind of, the structure is not quite just like I want to structure it. I think the source of the material I'm facing kind of point me to that structure. Um, there is oftentimes the, the direction of who travel, especially in tourism. I think the, the traveler often come from the coastal, like where Shanghai located, kind of east coast, urban center a little bit, maybe from the Beijing, Tianjin cluster, and also from Hong Kong and Canton or Guangzhou area. So it's kind of fairly concentrated from the source of the traveler. But in terms of the destination, you do see the expansion. What I call the expansion of the radius of tourism, you really have with the infrastructure extend. With actually the state, especially the nationalist government, um, kind of the nation building projects were extending, kind of hand in hand. They also get to travel further. All their desire to travel further got stronger. Um, of course, it's coupled with. What I think is also quite kind of influenced by Rebecca cows about uh kind of what colonialism or the threat of colonialism really stimulate this idea of nationalism. I think the threat of those peripheral region well oh had already fell off the map right fell off the Chinese map also stimulated their desire to travel to those regions of course, that doesn't mean they don't see it, it it seems to be out of this impulse of keep them within the map, right? Keep them within their reach of consumption or keep them within their reach of uh, belonging and identification. But doesn't mean they don't see them as other. By they, I mean the tourists for the coastal big cities and oftentimes are either uh, colonial cities like Hong Kong or semi-colonial cities like Shanghai. You 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 have them really go to these regions and look at it from a quite kind of today's first world tourist going to the third world country and you know that kind of attitude, which is, for you know as you put in the question, a type of othering, right? Of this 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 kind of. Uh, through tourism, you can shape this idea of us and them. Of course, you can also kind of sense, especially in the wartime travel that chapter four, you really see the coastal urbanizers struggling with. They obviously know they shouldn't talk about the people in the Southwest, you know, as the other, they kept kind of almost like reminding themselves and reminding the readers that these are our fellow countrymen, even though they're you know their their city is not that great, even though they're you know they don't have any culture, no bookstores, no cinema. You know, they kept doing this, which I found very interesting. But at the same time, I also kind of see that for them that corporate kind of hierarchy is so entrenched with this kind of. I'm the traveler, and you are the you know. I think Mary Louise Pratt used the word traveler, even though I, I my advisor at the time don't don't want me to ban me from use that word traveler. So so this kind of hierarchy is very much entrenched. But this kind of is what regional differences and kind of uh, was worked out through tourism. You know, on the one hand, they want to highlight. I I think at the beginning of the book, I put. Kind of the newsreel Wang or Wang Xiaoting, who's a very famous um photojournalist actually he he's actually Chinese American even though he later returned to China, who put this map of China but constituted it kind of consists of the photographs of famous tourist destinations uh in each province and um kind of formed this map so there this idea of inclusion all these All these provinces are part of China and their petition is actually through their uh, very distinctive and identifiable travel destinations and tourist sites. But on the other hand, the map also shows you the regional differences, right? You also see kind of the geological to kind of the cultural and social kind of diversity through that map. I found that kind of capture what tourism actually do. You know, you you're naturalize this contrast about differences and what's conceived as the sameness or the community that we imagine as the nation um, through that tension.
0: So as you talked about that, you just talked about regions, how there's these differences. You talked about the uh, sort of in and out. Could you actually, within that, talk about the idea of the border, either internal or external, but that seems to be, to some extent, an implicit key point in your book. What is this line of where things are included or excluded? Where is the demarcation point?
1: So in in this book, border is not quite just a line, like m- most commonly kind of we imagine on the ground, but most likely the line on the map, right? You know, in this book, I actually look at border in quite kind of fluid kind of way, even though I understand that it, it shape identity, shape community, it shape all sorts of, you know, things that we take for granted in our everyday life. What I mean by fluid is about a moment, you know, I'm talking about the time period when China is transitioning from the Qing Empire to you know, first to the Republic and then to the People's Republic. In fact, I think the Republican period from 1912 to 1949 is a time period borders need to be worked out. Uh, even though that's not my project, it's it's a pro in you know, a political or maybe legal historian's project about how borders are worked out in 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 real say, warfare or treaties or diplom, uh, diplomatic negotiations. But there's there's this kind of cultural or uh, maybe. Mm, there, there are borders are very important. For example, when I say okay, the core regions of China, I never really explained where they are, right? But, but it seems very. Co- oh, I use the term China proper, which actually a lot of like one of my reviewers basically say get rid of it. But I really don't have a better alternative to describe it. So the China proper is this eighteen provinces. So if if uh, if listeners don't know the Qing Empire. Which is a Manchu Empire who conquered uh, kind of the Han Chinese. Han Chinese is the uh, predominant uh, group in China. Most Chinese, like, or in Western language, sometimes Chinese is referring to Han Chinese. But the, the, the issue is the empire actually includes a lot of the regions that the previous dynasty, Ming, doesn't control which uh, didn't control, which included uh, their home, so-called homeland, Manchuria, um, included Mongolia, both inner and outer Mongolia, included the Uyghur region today called Xinjiang, or which the name was actually, um, uh, uh, put in place in the uh, late Qing period and also, uh, Tibet, right? Uh, of course, I'm not a Qing scholar, but Qing scholar will also tell you the, the the statecraft are different, you know, what control the China proper, the 18 provinces of Han Chinese or 18 provinces that used to belong to the Ming dynasty is quite different from the statecraft, how the Qing court control the outer regions, which are what I consider, you know, will be the periphery or at least the, the edge of that periphery. I think the periphery, actually, in my book, started with the China proper that connected to those outer regions, right? So that border is very real in the Qing dynasty. But when once the Qing empire crumbled, and especially to complicate the story, and the arrival of Western powers in the late Qing period, that also also kind of encroached on another border. We don't really talk about the maritime border, really right? really encroach on the coast. Of course, encroach on to kind of carve out tiny piece of, say, the ports on the Yangtze River or some other rivers, and a lot of time also on the international borders. All these encroachments also encroach on borders, even though it's not quite kind of what we understand borders as the line on the map between two nations. So all these are in, um, kind of in work in what I see as this kind of both internal and external borders in functioning, in, in shaping people's mobility, especially the physical travel mobility. But at the same time, I also want to show through a few examples to see how borders can crumble and emerge kind of overnight, right? for example in the chapters about in the in the last chapter about Manchuria and Taiwan I talk about those moments for example after Japan occupied Manchuria they really put a border like where the great war is where you know in Shanghai guan they actually put uh, a customs office and uh, even though Nanjing the government protested but after a few years they also put up their customs office on the uh, the border of Shanghai Guan, and the train still goes through. But the problem is, then they need to kind of make a stop at the border newly erected after the occupation, after after the Japanese occupation of Manchuria, and then the staff need to be changed. And uh, when they cross the border, right, that happened. The, the The border emerged overnight. Of course, there's also border crumble, which is the Case in the case of Taiwan, when Taiwan was returned to China in 1945, you know, used to be very hard to travel to for Chinese mainland travelers to go to Taiwan, even though they still did go, but they they need to go through a certain kind of circumvention to go in. But now suddenly the border uh, between the Chinese nation state and Japanese empire crumbled once Japan surrendered you You have tourism going to Taiwan become a phenomenon because that border just disappeared right Of course, it's also encouraged by uh kind of the uh, the government to see as some sort of decolonization effort to go to Taiwan. so all these kind of uh fluidity of the border or we you know can we say those borders are internal or external? That's a, that's a, that's a question I don't want to go to because, (laughs) but at the same time, I think it's very, uh, very real for the people who are traveling in those time. You know, you know, chapter four also talk about wartime, how, you know, when Japanese occupation is moving forward, that border just keep changing and how people travel also keep changing and need to go through borders out to go to Vietnam and back into China. All the story actually i think it tells a more kind of uh um complicated story about border that's kind of um uh, how it shape identity shape the the mobility and shape the community uh i think the story is uh, kind of the complicated story is something <laughs> i want to tell
0: yeah i mean it it seems to be the border is more of a contested space than a clear demarcation.
1: Exactly. Or maybe people will use borderlands or you know, kind of this kind of in betweenness is shaped by this border. But there's also things like um how do you kind of understand the people across the border is not necessarily buying into that border, right? So so that's a that's what travelers actually sometimes will kind of both acknowledge there's a new emergence of the border or the newly erasure of a border, but they will talk about it as, you know, of course it should be erased. Of course there should never be, you know, uh, uh, Taiwan was a calling, it's always a part of China. It's oftentimes appear in travel writing as kind of the erasure of that border, even though they, by acknowledging it's also kind of confirmed that it shouldn't exist, which is also uh what what to me tells a little bit about the nature of border in in kind of culture and social history.
0: Yeah, that well, to me that makes a lot of sense, but partly because I read the book. Uh, part of what you just referred to and have been building on is of course the tension with Japanese invasions, with war, with colonial perceptions. Uh, and ideas of governance. And in in the last chapter, particularly when you talk about Manchuria, you look towards some of those conflicting moments. Could you talk a little bit about how you decided to shape the organization of this book and tie this incredibly complex story together?
1: Originally, actually, it'll... Most of the first books are based on dissertation, even though this book is so different from dissertation, I don't know if I can even claim that anymore. But originally, I was thinking about kind of the three parts of of a book manuscript to really look at travel as a business, travel as a discourse, which I have, you know, in the first two chapters. And the last one is really about, last part is about travel as a transnational phenomenon which even within a national setting, which in the book, I think in different chapters, I try to bring that out. But the original kind of inspiration is about Manchuria. And part of it is also about Taiwan. I did a one year kind of language training in Japan and Yokohama really is trying to explore not just actually Chinese traveling to Manchuria and Taiwan, but also kind of How Japanese actually coming to Manchuria and Taiwan and also, you know, to certain parts of Korea and kind of trying to explore how the link between it. Um, that part got smaller, not because, you know, it's not relevant. I think in the chapter five, I still talk about a little bit about how Japanese travel to Manchuria and Taiwan and how, how Westerners travel to Manchuria and Taiwan. The purpose is, is, is to bring out a similarity. Between how Chinese actually talk about them, they they tour the same spots, they have the same kind of uh, kind of uh, um, kind of praise of the abundance of the land and the modernization, especially in the context of the colonial project. Even the Chinese were kind of both hated the fact that all these modernization projects exist in Taiwan and in Manchuria, uh, but at the same time kind of vowed to say one day we take this land back, we will, you know, do the same thing. Right. So so that tension still um preserved in in the uh in the chapter that's in the book. But ideal is really looking at this the organization of book is really kind of both temporal and spatial and also geographical. There's border on this um kind of maybe chicken and egg kind of conundrum it's like i would really want to pinpoint that the image of china being what the qing empire was like is imagined and it's it's created and constructed you know kind of very and in this book is through travel there's other methodology people use to construct that so i'm i'm trying to pinpoint it's unnaturalness rather than the naturalness of it. right? But at the same time, in order to describe the full scale and full extent of that construction, I really strive to include every part of that construction to make it a convincing story. Of course, I can foresee the criticism of me adopting Whatever this imagined idea of China should be just inherited from what quote unquote inherited from the Qing Empire as natural because I included all these different parts. I hope people really sense that my, my kind of desire to, or my, my, my aim to kind of, kind of go to include all these parts is to, to point out its unnaturalness rather than kind of accept its naturalness. But that's the conundrum I had. Because it seems like, um, seems like it's a, it's a, it's like I'm, I'm actually asserting, yes, Republic of China should, of course, have the same territorial kind of domain as the Qing Empire, which I don't think the book itself actually argued that, but I do think this, this imagination, this construction of that image require us to really look at different parts. Um, in, in, in the critical moments, I think, kind of the progressing through, especially as you put it, the tension with Japan. I think Japan is very much fundamentally shaped 20th century China. And I think to a certain degree, even, you know, even the PRC period, but I, I don't need to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: for me, at least, the way you structured the book, implied that this is this is a situation, that this is something that is being constructed and packaged, that to see the quote unquote real space, you need to go on a tour to see exactly these five things and eat at this restaurant to try this specific food. So I think that a naturalness, as you pointed out, of this idea that's supposed to be natural is very present throughout the story. Uh, and we could dig even further into it. There's a lot in here about, for example, different understandings of socioeconomic status and who different spaces belong to. There's points about cleanliness. There's correlations between colonization and the modern. But we have already taken up an enormous amount of your time, and I would, I would love to hear more. But I have two ending questions. The first is obviously people should read the book because it's phenomenal. But, if they want to go even a step further, do you have a favorite travel account, or maybe two even that you just really enjoyed while researching this topic where you're like if people like reading travel literature, et cetera, they should definitely think about reading this.
1: I don't know if my answer will disappoint you know people. I really actually enjoy kind of very cliched kind of western, Japanese, or you know even like National Geographic. Kind of writing about, I, I, I remember enjoy kind of reading their description of Manchuria. And I was like, people believe in that, but, <laughs> but at the same time, I think I, it's, it's also something we need to remember. It's not like it ended there. We, we probably consume things that there would be construed as, you know, kind of myth making and other things. But I think it's interesting to see how, um, to a certain degree, China actually pop up in a lot of these kind of accounts in uh, in Western pop media, and how it really, to a certain degree, go back to China and actually shaped Chinese way of perception of themselves or perception of their land at the time. Uh, uh, so I don't have a good answer of my favorite travel accounts for their kind of literary or even like inspirational merits, but I really would encourage people to go back to like old National Geographic articles about China and 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 see how it was done, kind of at that time, and 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 how how far, or how not so far, we actually progress in, <laughs> into
0: today. Um, yeah. yeah, I. I wish I could say we had definitely moved beyond those accounts, but they—they they do make for fascinating reads.
1: But yeah, I guess I—I I would say I would—I would be more encouraging to say today, like some of the writers about China, like Peter Hessler in New Yorker, you know, before and you know you have Evan Osnos, are all great, you know, social commentary about contemporary China. It's worth reading. So so it's not National Geographic. <laughs> You know, I'd say, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, it's my actual final, final question, which is standard for the New Books Network. Can you actually talk to us about what's next? This was phenomenal, and we're very much looking forward to seeing where you're going to go.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of a little cliche. I want to keep pursuing this kind of purported naturalness of China's national space. And of course, its impact on this kind of not not, uh, not naturalness, the knowledge production, right, of, of that naturalness of about China about itself. Maybe I can redo that sentence. So I want to continue to basically explore the purported naturalness of China's national space and its impact on knowledge production, China's knowledge production about itself. However, I would take a slightly different direction to examine a photographer or uh, a photographer's work about the Sino-Tibetan borderlands on um, uh, a region called Kham K H uh, A M which actually in Tibetan it's, it means borderland which is actually in today's western Sichuan uh, the the photographer's name is Zhuang Shiban who's also like me from Shanghai who actually traveled explored uh calm region in the thirties. Um during uh a lot of time is actually uh uh during the wartime to really to see this kind of a striking visual image of 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 this uh borderland of um and it's not just Tibetan, it's actually multi ethnic um which is kind of this riveting portrayal of the other. I think going back to your questions of the other, I think it's not quite, I want to confirm that, you know, these are the other. I think I want to come back to say by portraying, celebrating, or circulating these images of other, what does it to the self, right? The existence of the self actually, you know, going back to Said, would depend. Upon these others and the construction of these others, I think it's 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 something I want to explore kind of from a different direction uh about china's self image uh you know from from this kind of a lens of how creating the other expose a certain to a certain degree of the self uh
0: it's a very different text, but it reminds me what well, Sounds absolutely riveting. Um, it reminds me of, um, of course, completely forgetting the author's name right now, even though I have their face in my head. A particular author who wrote about German missionaries in South Africa and taking portraits, and discusses what these portraits do and how we can read them. And yeah, uh, of course,
1: that's also, different different. Well, that's also a global phenomenon, <laughs> but, right? I would Really um, go to what considered to be primitive to be savage. Of course the technology, again, that part I you know, photography was developed to the degree that uh, you know, very portable, very, you know, easily reproduced and recropped and re edited and circulated. That's also a global moment that I'm very much interested in. This you know, this kind of interplay between the local and the global
0: well this book was phenomenal it was a pleasure to read and I really appreciate you sitting down with me and talking about it for an hour of your time oh thank you it's so much it's been a pleasure yeah it's a pleasure for me great questions and
1: actually makes me think a lot about you know I thought I thought so much about this book I think it's really enjoyable thank you so much
0: we will look forward to talking to you after the next one. Oh, thank you